Welcome to the Jewish Lives Podcast, a monthly show by Jewish Lives, the prize-winning biography series published by Yale University Press and the Leon D. Black Foundation. I'm your host, Alessandra Walner. In each episode, we explore the life and legacy of an influential Jewish figure. Today, we're looking at famed Israeli author Amos Oz. In the second part of the show, I'll sit down with Robert Alter, author of the Jewish Lives biography, Amos Oz, writer, activist, icon. If you like what you hear, rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a friendly review. Thank you in advance. You can learn more about our books at jewishlives.org. Join us as we explore the Jewish experience together. Israeli author Amos Oz became famous for two things, evocative storytelling and an unwavering commitment to peace in the Middle East. Basically, I think uh, you don't have to be 100% pro-Israel or 100% pro-Palestine. You have to try to grasp the complexity and the ambivalence of this tragic clash between right and right, sometimes between wrong and wrong. Oz's story like that of his homeland, was one of resilience and transformation. He was born Amos Klausner in 1939 in Jerusalem, Mandatory Palestine. Oz grew up in a nation struggling to find its identity amid intense regional conflicts which continue today. At age 14, Oz left home and moved to a kibbutz, His early experiences there shaped the young writer's worldview, instilling him with a deep sense of collective responsibility and a passion for storytelling. It is a very demanding thing to be uncompromising in your writing. I lament over every word, every noun, every adjective, every adverb, every punctuation for a long time. That's why I'm a slow writer. Amos Oz emerged as a literary force during his service in the Israeli Defense Forces in the 1960s. The Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War became the crucible for his early works. In novels like My Michael and Black Box, Oz explored the complexities of human relationships and the challenges of nation-building. But it was Oz's masterpiece, A Tale of Love and Darkness, published in 2002, that would cement his status as a literary giant. In this autobiographical novel, Oz entwines the intricate personal history of his family with the history of the state of Israel, weaving a tapestry of personal struggles and national birth pangs that shaped his identity. The book became an international sensation, translated into myriad foreign languages, gaining huge critical acclaim, and eventually becoming a major motion picture written and directed by, and starring, Natalie Portman. Amos Oz was widely celebrated for his literary work, but he was also a dedicated educator, a human rights activist, and a passionate advocate for peace. In a region marked by conflict, Oz became a steadfast and eloquent voice for dialogue and reconciliation. I came to protest about, uh, against what I regard as a crying and vicious injustice, the plundering of the fruit of the olive trees. 
of settlers of an Arab village by Jewish settlers from a nearby settlement. Nothing in the world can justify this, just as nothing in the world can justify the murder of two Jewish children and one Jewish woman last night. Oz believed in the power of words to bridge divides. He engaged in discussions with Palestinians, fostering connections and always seeking common ground. His commitment to a two-state solution and his unwavering dedication to peace earned the writer recognition as a global ambassador for coexistence. Amos Oz died in 2018. In a world often divided by ideology and politics, his words prove that literature can become a bridge between cultures and serves as a reminder that boundaries can be transcended. According to the acclaimed author Jonathan Kirsch, quote, any new book by Robert Alter is an occasion to celebrate. His latest is especially compelling precisely because he applies his genius for making ancient texts come fully alive to the life and work of a consequential figure from our own times. Discover an intimate portrait of the iconic Israeli author Amos Oz in the new Jewish Lives biography, Amos Oz, writer, activist icon by Robert Alter. Save 25% for a limited time only. Use code AMOSOZ at checkout. That's A-M-O-S-O-Z. Only at jewishlives.org. Robert Alter is a celebrated translator, literary critic, and biblical scholar. He is professor of the Graduate School and Emeritus Professor of Hebrew and Comparative Literature at the University of California at Berkeley, where he has taught since 1967. His 28 published books include two prize-winning volumes on biblical narrative and poetry and award-winning translations of Genesis and of the five books of Moses. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Alter. Glad to be here. Can you start by reading a passage from the book that exemplifies Amos Oz? To start a conversation, I'm going to go to the very end of the book. At the very end, I try to sum up my sense of uh, who Amos Oz was and the kind of life he lived. Amos was plagued with doubts about his self-worth, haunted by the trauma of his childhood, that is his mother's suicide when he was 12, repeatedly drawn in his fiction to ponder the dark, self-destructive side of human nature, and often unable to shake loose from his role as a public performer, that constant masquerade he spoke of toward the end of his life to his friend, Nurit Gertz. And yet, he embraced the world around him with an eagerness of fascination. He was able to love his wife, his children, his grandchildren, and his dearest friends, both men and women, unreservedly. He could be spontaneous and funny. And for all his delving as a writer into the murky depths of people, he was staunchly committed to the importance of reason in human affairs, especially in the realm of politics. And I, I will just add a, a few sentences from the very end. 
Was he a happy man? The available evidence may indicate that he was, although perhaps only intermittently. What is moving about the life of Amos Oz is that it was finally a kind of triumph against heavy odds. The triumph lies not just in the literary achievement of his finest work, but in the identity he managed to sustain as a loving husband, father, and friend, as a dedicated writer exploring the limits of his art, and as an Israeli citizen driven by an imperative of conscience. His was not an easy life, but finally it was a fulfilled life, not only artistically, but morally. Thank you. So beautiful. And I think uniquely colored by the fact that you are unique among Jewish Lives authors and that this biography subject was a personal friend of yours. Can you tell us about your relationship with Amos Oz? Yes. So in um, 1969, uh, at the time I was writing a column for uh, on Jewish arts and, and life for um, commentary. And... Um, uh, I wrote a piece on Amos Oz and my, uh, not that of course at the time, and A.B. Yehoshua as two emerging, very exciting literary talents in Israel. Well, uh, Amos read the, the article and uh, liked it a lot. So the next year, 1970, when he came to San Francisco to to give a talk, he got in touch with me. I took him out for dinner at a Mexican restaurant. I, I think from the way he ordered, he had never been in a Mexican restaurant. And we hit it off and uh, we remained uh, warm friends over the years. So now putting on your hat as a literary critic, I want to ask you for your professional opinion on what you'd say the major themes and reoccurring motifs in his literary work was. And I'm curious if you think they stayed constant during his life or if they shifted or evolved. That's a good question. Um, th there was some shift, uh, I think. For example, fairly late in, in, in his life, when, when he was well in his 60s, he wrote an experimental novel called The Same Sea, which is a novel in verse. And uh, it's about a man in his late 50s who's recently been widowed. And um, his son, as young Israelis in that era often did, was off in Southeast Asia, exploring the world and exploring himself. And the son's girlfriend, doesn't have a place to stay, so she moves in with, with uh, the, the uh, this older man. Uh, nothing sexual happens between them, but there is a certain erotic energy, I would say, between them. Now, in most ways, this is far from Amosos's life, and yet th there are moments when the life bursts through. He sent me all his books with inscriptions, and then the copy he sent to, to me, he said, this is my most personal book. Th there is um, a character, I guess we call him a character, called 
the fictional author, who is actually the real author, Amos Oz. And at one point, one of the female characters burst out at him and says, why are you spending 45 years grieving over this mother who abandoned you? Get rid of it now. It's an insult to, to all women. And that's Amos Oz. I wanted to ask you about exactly that, which is this major incident in his childhood, which was the death of his mother when he was 12. And it shaped his life clearly. And I wanted to hear more from you on on how that defined him. Yeah, well, first, uh, I have to say that he was very close to his mother, much more than to his father. His mother was a kind of poetic soul, very imaginative. And she would tell him stories about her European, rooted in her European background. Um, and they were rather spooky stories uh, about trolls and ogres and witches and, and mysterious things happening in dark forests. I think all, all that really ends up getting into his fiction in, in an oblique way. When he was eight, she had a kind of emotional breakdown from which she never recovered. That is, for four years, she sat in a chair staring through the window and was almost uncommunicative. And then when he was 12 and a half, she went off to Tel Aviv to her sister's house and took an overdose of sleeping pills and killed herself. Now. He experienced this as an abandonment. And he never stopped feeling that for, I don't know how many, maybe 25 years, he would not say a word about this suicide, even to his wife. Although everybody in Israel, you know, it's a tiny country, knew about it and knew about the... the um, you might say, indirect representations of his mother and his, the marriage of his parents that one can see in his fiction. He finally came to terms, well, I shouldn't say came to terms, he, he finally came out with it. First in fragments in that poetic novel, and then three years later, uh, up front, very visible, he imagined the wrenching closing pages of that book, The Last Hours of His Mother's Life. Well, you would think this is cathartic, and I did for a long time. But now, from the, the testimony of two women whose recorded conversation who publishes books afterwards, it turns out that, that he was haunted by this to his dying day. And he said something quite terrible about himself. He said, th this he said to Nuit Gertz, his close friend, you should know that I am worthless. I have to be worthless because the woman who was the most important person in his life abandoned him. That's how we always looked at her, the suicide. She abandoned him, and if she abandoned him, she couldn't really have 
loved him. So that, that, that's the demon that, that he struggled with his whole life. So that leads right into the next question about what he's most known for as a writer, which is his memoir, A Tale of Love and Darkness. So can you tell us what's that book's significance in the broader literary landscape? Well, I think even though it ends in those terribly haunting pages in which, as a novelist, he tries to imagine his mother's last hours, how she put an end to her life. I don't think it's just about his uh, mother's suicide. In a couple of television interviews, he said, well, the book is about the family. And that's partly true. But I think, and uh, maybe this is a somewhat novel view, I think that the book is ultimately about how he came to his calling as a novelist. That is, all the variegated materials in the book, and it's very varied. There are hilariously funny scenes, and he represents the eccentricities of the Klausner family, his kind of crazy grandmother, and the history of the family in Europe. All that is, and then the neighborhood that he lived in, Kerem Avraham, which as he represented, it was full of all kinds of messianic madmen, you know, preachers of Marxism and radical Zionism and, I don't know, vegetarianism, and anything you can think of. All this went into who he became as a writer. Of course, the stories his mother told him. There's a really beautiful passage somewhere in the middle of a tale of love and darkness. He's six years old, and he's lying on his back. Remember, there's a rather poor, dingy neighborhood. He's lying on his back in the concrete courtyard, looking up at the evening sky. And he sees all the different colors, one fading into another as the sun sets. He hears a girl in one of the apartments uh, around him practicing the piano and playing uh, Beethoven's Für Elisa. He sees the laundry hanging on the lines, the scrawny alley cats, and so forth. And then he says to himself, remember all this. Don't forget it. Forty years from now, in a voice that is not your voice now, you will remember it and put it in your writing. He hears this voice addressing him in a tone that brooks neither frivolity nor laughter. Now, that phrase actually was lifted from S.Y. Agnon's great modernist novel, Only Yesterday. It comes at the tragic end of the novel. This really is when he hears his voice saying, remember all this, take all this in. He's feeling at the age of six and a half the imperative to assume his vocation 
as a writer. This is the task on earth that he's meant to perform. And in this way, I see that passage as analogous to the memorable moment at the end of James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, in which he looks over the River Liffey and vows that he will, in his writing, forge the uncreated conscience of his race. I think that's what this book is really about. So in addition to a writer, he was also a professor and an educator for many years of his life. I'm curious how his work as a teacher and a mentor contributed to the development of the next generation of Israeli writers. Well, it's a little hard to know how one person contributes to a a whole generation. Let me explain to your viewers the the way he came to, to be a professor was after 25 years on the kibbutz, uh, his son Daniel exhibited severe asthma. And uh, the doctors advised him to move to a drier climate, climate for the sake of the child. So he left the kibbutz without any funds. They denied him the separation payment because they said he was taking away income from the kibbutz. That that is, all his royalties as a writer were going to the kibbutz because it's a collective settlement. So he needed to find a way beyond his writing to to, um, earn a living. And he got a a position teaching at Ben-Gurion University in Beersheba, which wasn't that far from Arad. It was an easy commute. I have no first-hand testimonies from students. I'm sure students were excited by his classes. Uh, Anyone who has heard him speak, as I did several times, knows that he was very charismatic in front of groups. Did you ever see him teach? I didn't see him teach. One thing that, that I did was that see him for the first time for me address an audience in Hebrew. That is, I had heard him speak in San Francisco at least a couple of times, and I could see that he had a wonderful gift for engaging audiences. He was almost seductive with audiences, very charming and good-humored and so forth. His English was quite adequate. As he usually spoke from notes, not from a prepared text. And um, uh, his English as it was was perfectly fluent, you know, a little a, a bit of an Israeli accent, not a painful one. And uh, also, I would say um, here and there he, there'd be a little slip in, in idiomatic usage in English, but there was nothing. When he retired from Ben-Guyon University, I was invited to take part in a day honoring him on the occasion of his retirement. So I was one of several people who spoke. And then Amos spoke. Of course, all this was in Hebrew. And his Hebrew was amazing. He just had all the resources of the language, all the the 
historical layers, the, the various kinds of idiomatic nuances at his fingertip. And speaking really with no notes, he could summon all this up. So another thing that Amos Oz was celebrated for was his advocacy for peace in a two-state solution. And he was respected by politicians. They sought him out for his voice and his perspective. So what were his contributions to these efforts and why was he so compelling to, you know, outside the realm of literature? Well, he was passionate about his political activism. When the smoke had cleared after the 1967 war, he became a, a devoted advocate for reconciliation with, with the Palestinians. And of course, for a two-state solution. He remained that way his entire life. That is, in his last years, when many Israelis, and of course, many observers from abroad were saying, no, the, the, the two-state solution is dead. We have to have one state in which Israelis and Arabs will live together equitably. Uh, Amos felt that that was totally unrealistic. He said the list of nations where two or more ethnic religious groups live together in peaceful coexistence consists of Switzerland and Switzerland and Switzerland. Uh, and then, then he pointed to, uh, to Cyprus, to Northern Ireland, to Serbia and so forth, where, where people from different groups are killing each other all, all, all the time. His passionate belief to the end was that although it may not seem realistic now, someday uh, a two-state solution has to come about. And maybe in light of the terrible events of the last week, we should rethink that. So after writing this book about the life of your friend, is there anything from that writing, that came of that writing, that you would like to ask him or that you'd like to say to him? Well, as a friend, I guess, knowing now how uh, devastated he felt his whole life about his mother's suicide, I guess as a friend, I would say to him, Amos, why are you so hard on yourself? You've been a good person, a loving husband, a devoted father. You, you've achieved admirable things uh, as, as a writer. You, you have made whatever contribution you could as an Israeli citizen. So... He's up, up on yourself a little bit. That wouldn't have done any good, but that's what I would have said. Well, that's what we've got for today. So thank you so much, Professor Alter, for talking with us about your book, your new book, right? It's just coming out? It just came out. Congratulations. So your new book, Amos Oz, Writer, Activist, Icon. Right. The Jewish Lives Podcast is made possible by the Leon D. Black Foundation. Special thanks to our partners at Yale University Press, the Jewish Lives editorial director, Eileen Smith, series editors, Anita Shapira and Stephen J. Zipperstein, 
Managing Director Rebecca Keyes, and to Linda Brennan and Ruby Elliott Zuckerman. The Jewish Lives Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Alessandra Walner. Our music is composed by Barry J. Cohen. <laughs>